And Paul had a reason for writing that letter to those churches because they were considering what he labeled another gospel, which was not a gospel at all. Paul simply explained that salvation comes by faith alone in Christ alone. It is by grace that we are saved. And he tells us that that, that new life came by the Spirit and the law has no place in our lives because it does not perfect us, does not make us better, does not keep our salvation, it does not give us salvation. And he asks, how is it that you receive the Spirit if you did? And it was by faith. Then he discusses that freedom. And then he further talks about how that impacts our life in the sense of if we live in the flesh, that there are certain things that are deeds of the flesh and their envy and carousing and all kinds of other immoralities and dissensions. But he says if we live by the Spirit, that there ought to be, in essence, a growth by the Spirit in us and that the Spirit should be producing fruit, and that fruit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And he explains all of that, and we've been taking a look at the fruit of the Spirit Then he says, if we live by the Spirit, if if we have been born again, if that is what is controlling, then we ought to walk, we ought to conduct our lives in such a way that is controlled by the Spirit. And that has a result. And so now he's going to get to the more practical, if you will. These are the things that our theology ends on. And then the following is how our actions are reflective, if you will, of our theology. And so uh, in verse 25 of, of Galatians 5, it says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. And then in chapter 6, he's going to give some instructions on how the family of God ought to conduct himself. And so in verse 1, it says this, Brethren, I'm going to stop myself right there. And notice that he uses this term, in essence, as family. I'm writing to you, and yeah, I've been stern and whatever, but we're family. And he's also saying that we are, not just Paul and the churches of Galatia, but the members of the Galatian churches are family. Similarly, all churches ought to conduct themselves and look at themselves as family. Sometimes we don't think of it that way, but we kind of conduct ourselves in that way. And how do we do that? Because sometimes the rudest, meanest things that we do are to our own family members. And we tend to be much nicer to strangers. But we are family and ought to conduct ourselves. And so Paul says, brethren, so he's talking to family. Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And I want to unpack that kind of portion by portion. So he starts off by saying, we're family. So a family, it's not, this isn't the world. These aren't sinners. This isn't how the world's conducting itself. We're not to be chasing the world and telling them they're living wrong. It's about family members. So brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, the idea here isn't that somebody is just deliberately sinning. It's kind of the idea of falling or being ensnared in a trap. 
And so sometimes when we conduct our lives, we don't intend to sin, we don't intend to trespass, but sometimes we just do. So if, if that happens, it says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. So first off, it tells us not everyone is to go and say, hey, you've been sinning, cutting it out. Part of the people who shouldn't be saying, you've been sinning, cutting it cut out, are the Pharisees, the ones who live by the law. He says, if you're living by the Spirit, those are the people. If you are spiritual. So, if you think that a Christian shouldn't do this and you have all these whatever, then you're probably not the person to go talk to that person. It's the person who lives a spiritual life. I'm going to use this analogy in a little bit, but it's kind of like being... If, if you are a doctor or a nurse, then you're probably qualified to assist somebody in their health issues. But if you're a plumber, you may know how to clear a drain, but I don't want you anywhere near my intestines. Okay? So the people who are supposed to be involved with helping you out when it comes to trespass is people who are spiritual. They've been equipped to do this. Then it says, in a, again, it says, restore. Too many times our attempts to get somebody back on track is to condemn them or to accuse them or to uh, isolate them. And the purpose of this is restoration so that you might be brought back into family as a fully functional family member. It's not a matter of, oh, I'm going there to condemn you. The issue is I'm there to restore you back to that relationship. Look at Jesus. Who was Jesus hardest on? Those who claimed to know better, the Pharisees. Those who did things reprehensible, like selling merchandise and charging exorbitant prices in the temple when it should have been a house of prayer. When Jesus found other people locked in sin, what did he do? He was meek. He was gentle. He offered forgiveness. He even said to Nicodemus, I didn't come to condemn. If you don't believe, you've been condemned already. He's there to restore. And that's the point of the person who is spiritual to coming to those who have been caught in trespass. Restoration, not condemnation. In a spirit of gentleness. One of those fruits of the Spirit that we come not because we lord it over, not because I'm better than you, but because I come in gentleness. As we saw a few weeks ago, a gentle word Turns away wrath. So when you go to that person seeking to discuss their trespass, you do it in a sense of gentleness. And then one I think we all too often forget 
Each one look into yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Now this is going to be a lousy example, but it's the best one I can think of. And it doesn't have a perfect analogy. But sometimes people get sick and they have to go into a hospital. And sometimes in the hospital, they have to be put in isolation. Now that isolation may be to protect them because they don't want you to get they don't want the patient to get what you might have, even though you may not know that. Or they may be on isolation because they have some type of disease or illness that can be transmitted to others. And so they're put in isolation. And those who are doctors and nurses and who are trained to know how to treat a patient who needs to be in isolation ought to be treated. Sin is a far more communicable disease than anything known to man. Even Ebola. Because even Ebola can mess your body up. can't take your soul. These are spiritual matters, and we should be very concerned. So just as a doctor or a nurse treating a patient who may have a disease that is transferable are, are cautious, we too need to be cautious in that because the sin, very sin, or other sins that we are trying to deal with, saying, oh, you've been caught in it, guess what? Can be, I can get caught in it. I need to make sure that I protect myself. And how do I protect myself? Not to go and, and evade your isolation, but know that it's the Spirit of God that controls. It's the Spirit of God who forgives. It's the Spirit of God who gives strength. And so when I go and we do these things, and when you go to discuss with your brother or sister some sin that they've been caught into, and you go there with the purpose of restoration, and you go there with the, the attitude of gentleness, you also go there understanding that there, for the grace of God, go I. And let's face it, sometimes the very sin that we are communicating how they ought to not sin, we find in our own lives sins far worse. So make sure that you treat that situation even far more seriously than we do health. So that we too would not be tempted. I use an example because I don't like to use particular sins because if I use particular sins, you either think I've committed them or I'm talking about you or somebody. And so I use other analogies. And my analogy that I constantly use, and if you've been here for more than six months, you've probably heard it before. Some sin is broccoli and some sin is chocolate. Broccoli has no... I have no interest in broccoli. I have such little interest in broccoli, I have no clue why anybody ever decided it was edible. The only thing worse to me than broccoli is cauliflower. And now everybody's doing stuff with cauliflower. I mean, they're doing pizza with cauliflower. How gross. It has no, I have, I have no desire to do it. And so there are certain sins that, that just don't tempt me. Just not interested. Chocolate, on the other hand, whether it's little M&M's, or really big Hershey bars. 
or Heath bars, or whatever it might be, or Almond Joys, although I usually give the almond to my wife because she likes almonds, and I'm thinking, why are you messing up the candy? But why do I get Almond Joy? Because I like milk chocolate over dark chocolate. Okay? And so if, if your sin was chocolate, then it may not be a good idea for, you, for me to consult you about your sin about chocolate. Because it's a whole lot easier for me to be tempted. If your deal is broccoli, I'm your guy. Because I just don't care. So when we are considering about going and assisting into restoration, we also ought to understand that temptation. Then he goes on after talking to brethren, he says, talks about burdens. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Paul is saying that part of being the family of God is there are times in our lives when we are confronted with things that are just too hard for us to carry. Some of us have greater strength than others. Sometimes there may be an illness that just seems to be so difficult for us to carry that, that someone needs to help. To others, the illness may not be that big a burden, even though it may be the same illness. We all look at things differently and react to them differently. My mother, many, many years ago, was diagnosed with uterine cancer. She was pretty stoic about it. She didn't have insurance at the time, and the doctor said, you have uterine cancer, and what are you going to do about it? And her response was, I guess I'll die, because I don't have insurance. So the doctor was gracious enough that he checked around, and he found that the City of Hope would do the surgery for free. And she did. She had the procedure done. Those of you who have had cancer know that there's a process that you go through after the surgeries, and you get... You know, she dealt all with that great. Several years later, she was diagnosed of having um, diabetes. You would have thought she was given a terminal prognosis. She was depressed. She didn't know what to do. Because she had, that was something she had to live with and something that affected her life. That was a burden... Being diagnosed with cancer, okay, it's a fact of life. Being diagnosed with diabetes, much more difficult. The scripture says there will come a time in various parts of our, the body of Christ that will experience difficulties and problems that are burdens, that are hard for you to carry. And that is when we as family are to come along and help you carry that burden. And the weaker you are, the more of us that need to be there to carry that. Because let's face it, if you had a 100-pound boulder, it would wear you out pretty quickly. But if there were two, three, or four more people there helping you carry that boulder, imagine how long and how far you could go because there was help. Not only, if you will, physically, but there is that attitude that I am not in this alone. Someone cares. 
And there are certain things in life, whether it may be a disease or a spiritual problem or immature or whatever it might be, that we think that if we find out, that if other people find out that this is my problem, not only will they not want to help me, they'll go away. And the way that we show true love is no matter what that burden is, we help pick it up and we carry it until the burden dissolves. But it tells us that if you think you're something when you're nothing, you deceive yourself. All too often, we think we're too important. My time is too valuable to help. I have such an a important job or ministry that I can't spend my time helping you. And the scripture says, you're deceiving yourself. You're just not that important. For you see, if the city of Westminster needs saving, and it does, then you're not the only one there to, be, to see that done. And God will call that person and will give that person power to do that task. But so often we get so involved in our job, whether our job might even be ministry, that we forget to do what he's called us to do. To restore, to reconcile, to lift burdens, to love justice, to seek justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Those things that God, and yet we think we are just so important. And when you think you're so important, I just want you to think of this. How important is Jesus? He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Millions upon millions upon millions of angels sing his praise. And yet, he left heaven and all those praises because you bore a burden you could not carry. And you had a shame that you could not get rid of. And he took that and carried it himself for you. So if Jesus can spend time to help you and me, then you and I can spend time helping those that he thought was worthy to die on a cross. Verse 4 says, But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. We humans have this terrible proclivity. And that is to find peace or comfort in the problems of others. Or success and satisfaction by our success over others. And you say, well, I don't know. Let me give you, there's an example that's so common that we even have a phrase for that. And it's this. 
I was depressed that I had no shoes until I saw the man who had no feet. We find somehow that it's better even though we don't have any shoes because somebody else has no feet. That's terrible. To say that somehow I'm better off and therefore I can praise God because somebody else is worse off than me. But we have this tendency to compare ourselves to others. And we do that in good things. We do that in athletic competition, and I'm not saying we should, and I'm not one of those who says everybody ought to get a prize. Okay, I think if you win the 100-yard, 100, it tells you how old I am, the 100-meter dash, and you're the winner, you ought to get the trophy. All right? I think if your baseball or football or soccer team wins whatever, it ought to get a trophy. All right? But the problem is, is that we take that and then somehow impart that in our Christian experience and we say, oh, because my church is bigger or because more people are on my, friend me on my Facebook or uh, more people come to my concerts or my church is bigger or whatever, we think that somehow that impresses God and ought to impress everybody else. Paul does tell us, like athletes, if we are going to train, and do what is necessary to present our ministry to Christ, then we ought to conduct her such a way as to win. But the competition in spiritual matters is not individual. It is not my race against you, and I beat you, therefore I'm better. What it ought to be is, what are the talents and gifts that God has given me and what have I done in regard to those? And God has given you different gifts and different talents that he's given me. And he's given you maybe more of one thing and less of another than he's given me. And so to compare what you're doing with what I'm doing, whether it's better or worse, is none of my business. And it's none of your business what I'm doing. Each of us is to take a look at what God has done to us and what God has given us and look at the reward based on that and not someone else. And I learned that early on, before I was a pastor, before I was a deacon, even in my youth, there was a, a, I call him a gentleman uh, because I knew him for a period of time, he's he was probably, I had no idea how old he is, was. Um, most of you don't know him, so I'll use his name. A couple of you might. His name was George. George had mental disabilities. Along with a number of other things, his mother, without getting, would not be a mother you would have wanted. She had I'll just leave it there. She was not a mom that you would have wanted. So not having a mother that would be supportive and whatever, and probably much of the difficulties he had was because of his mother and because of his mental deficiencies, what we would call disabilities. He was different. 
But George, when he started coming to this church, came every time the door was open. He had two, three, or more Bibles under his arm. If he couldn't take the bus, he walked here. And he was always smiling. Oftentimes he was the first person in the line to get something to eat. And sometimes that would be a little irritating until you kind of, until I matured a little more. But I started to taking a look at George and saying, if I, with what God has given me, conducted myself in the, with the same percent of intensity in my faith that George did with the talents and limitations that God gave him, I would have been a far better believer and man. And George, in my earlier Christian life, even to this day, has impacted my thought of comparison. And I know you've probably all heard stories about various people like the woman who nobody ever heard of, who prayed and prayed over a city and prayed so much that the rock that she prayed on and knelt on was worn from her knees. And the city never experienced revival until she died. Nobody, and I don't even know her name. I just know the story. But there are going to be men and women like that that no one has ever heard of. And we'll go and we'll expect people like Billy Graham and justly so Billy Graham ought to receive whatever rewards Billy Graham is to receive. But there are people that we know, pastors that we have seen on TV or been in their churches and been so impressed with or read their books saying, surely that person is going to receive all these wonders and all these gifts and all these accolades. But I suspect far more people that we have never heard of receive far more because they were given little and turned that little into what God could grow. And we who have been given much think that we can give much and in our giving much do so little. To stop looking at others, whether it's for their difficulty or for their glory. It has nothing to do with you. There's a song that says, if just a cup of water is all I've given, then just a cup of water is all I require. The question is, what has God given you and what have you done with it? So if you want to boast, great boast. But boast in what God has done for you and what you've done for God, but not say, well, I'm better than pastor so-and-so. And not in regard to one another. Verse 5, for each one will bear his own load. Now, if you look at verse 5, you might say, well, that kind of comes in conflict with verse 2. Because one, it says we're supposed to share each other's burdens, but this says you're supposed to carry your own load. A burden is not a load. A load in this instance, the best way I can kind of translate this for you is each one is to carry his own backpack. That's what God's saying. Each of us is to carry his own backpack. 
If you've been given a boulder, all of us are come to help. But don't ask me to carry your backpack because that's yours. And God has put certain things in your backpack that you're to carry. But if, it be, but if it's a burden, then we're to share it. The last verse I'm going to speak on very quickly because nobody other than maybe television evangelists who spend their first half hour trying to get you to give money are interested in. But almost everybody else tries to avoid this verse. Verse 6. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. That means a couple of things. Not just one, it means a couple things. First off, those who teach are supposed to be compensated. That's monetarily, that's whatever. But it's not just that. And so oftentimes when we say, okay, you need to give and give so that, you know, so those who teach, so let's face it. We didn't have money to pay the light bill. We could still handle things, you know, but things make it a little easier. Um, we didn't have electricity. You, we couldn't, couldn't use the mic, which may be better because then you could sleep better without me yelling at you. But uh, there are things that, that are necessary in order for ministry to happen, and one of those things is to have a teacher. But it's not, it, notice it says, to share all good things. So it's not just talking about money. So... I'm not seeking for you to pat me on the back, but I guess I'm seeking for you to pat me on the back. Okay. Here's the deal. I don't want to hear, quote unquote, that was a good sermon, unless it was a good sermon. But what I'd like to hear, not that that was a good sermon, but this is what I learned, or this is what came to me, or this is what, or this is what I need to think further about, or thank you for, so that that when I'm up here, it's not just a matter of me flapping my gums, waiting till 11 o'clock, and then we sing a couple of songs and go away. That I actually benefited you spiritually. That you share the good things. That yes, and so you say, yes, the sermon had an impact on me, or it's going to have an impact on me. Not, it was a good sermon. Now, I will tell you that while I've said that you should do that, I will continue to do what those of you who've said good sermon or followed my advice, I will say thank you. And that's all I'll say. In my thank you, I'm going to, because I don't want to be, because you've given me a nice thing. The reality is if, if, if you got something out of the sermon, it's because the Spirit of God gave you something out of the sermon. So I'm going to understand that I'm not going to take credit. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to seem humble and say, oh, it wasn't me, it was the Spirit of God. I'm just going to say thank you. Because I do appreciate it, but I also understand that if you stayed awake, it wasn't because of my excellent method of delivery but because the spirit of God spoke to you and I would rather stand up here and mumble on 
and the Spirit of God impact you than for me to give the most outstanding, memorable sermon and you walk away going, wasn't that an outstanding, memorable sermon? I'm not going to do anything with it, but it was an outstanding, memorable sermon. Because it's not about giving outstanding, memorable sermons. It's about you and me being more like Jesus. And I can't help you be more like Jesus because I can't even help me be more like Jesus. It's his spirit that does. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So, today don't tell me you like the sermon or not because that's too easy. Next week or thereafter you can do whatever. And again, I will continue to say thank you. But notice that Paul has given us some instructions about how to treat the family. And unfortunately, the family has gotten a bad rap. Because oftentimes we have such dysfunctional families that people don't even want to go to their family's house to have dinner on a holiday or whatever or make jokes or movies about how terrible their family or their in-laws are. And one of the things I hate most about family is being treated like the in-laws. But that's true. Sometimes we treat... But please don't treat the church like the in-laws. We are brothers and sisters. We're not brother-in-laws and sister-in-laws. We're not father-in-laws and mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws. We're family. And this family is probably just as dysfunctional as many other families. But you know, we're not satisfied with that. Our goal is to be like our older brother, Jesus. And as long as that is our goal, then we may have a little fun in our dysfunction. But he's on the road to making us whole and well. And so in just a moment after I pray, we're going to sing a hymn that says, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Because, let's face it, you may lose friends, but as long as I'm alive, whether they disappoint me or I disappoint them, I still have two children. They may decide they don't want anything to do with their father, but I'm still their father. I have five grandchildren, and there may come a time as they get older, as kids have a want to do, to rather be there with their friend of five minutes than their grandfather. I understand that. That's the way life goes. But even in those days, I still love them, and I'm still their grandfather. Your God in heaven loves you so much 
There is nothing that you can do to separate you from that love. And as his children, we also understand there is nothing that any of us can do to separate us from his love and the love that we have for one another. Because our love is more than DNA. It comes from the blood. And so, my challenge to you as a family, if we're more dysfunctional than you think we ought to be, help us. Pray for us. Show us an example of how our brother and sister ought to act so that our dysfunction becomes simply fun. And if you find that this family is what you've been looking for, praise God. We need to pray for it. But don't think you've come and found a perfect church. Because if you ever find a perfect church, whether it's this one or another one, don't join. You're just, why would you not? Because you're not perfect, and you'll mess it up. But there are no perfect churches, because there are no perfect people. We simply give glory to one who is, the one who called us, and the one who had called us to be the children of God. And all God's people said,